Welcome to the Food for Your Soul podcast, where we apply the Word of God to the hearts of men and women to stoke the fires of your delight in Christ. We're studying the crucifixion account in Mark 15, and we left off last time at the halfway point. Jesus was on the cross for six hours. And we covered the first three last time, which puts us right at high noon. And at noon, everything changes. Everything changes. The first half of those six hours on the cross was full of mockery. Everybody wanted to get in on it. It was as loud, raucous, three hours. Then came high noon, verse 33, Mark 15, 33. At the sixth hour, that's noon, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now that right there is everything Mark has to say about those three hours. That's it. What were the soldiers doing during that time in the dark? We don't know. What about the crowds, the chief priests, the other criminals? What was Jesus saying? What was he doing? Not a word about any of that. For Mark, the only thing that mattered during those second three hours on the cross was the darkness. Mark divides Jesus' time on the cross in halves. The first half, man had his say. The second half, God has his say. But God doesn't use words when he has his say. He just has his say by turning off the sun. This was not an eclipse. No eclipse lasts three hours, and you can't even have a solar eclipse at Passover anyway because that's the full moon. It wasn't a storm. It wasn't a dust storm. It wasn't cloudy. This is an awesome terrifying, supernatural darkness. And it rattled the people. Luke 23, 48, when all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. God shut the mockers' mouths with this darkness. So if the darkness is the only thing that mattered, we need to think carefully about what the darkness meant, right? So that's what we're going to do tonight. That's all we're going to do tonight is just try to take a peek into that horrible three hours of darkness and see what it means. And I'll tell you right now, it is loaded with meaning. Loaded with meaning. This is going to take us two sessions. So what is the significance of darkness? Well, just the starting point. It doesn't take a Bible scholar or expert to understand that if, if, if you're doing something and then the sky goes black in the middle of the day, God's not happy with what you're doing, right? That's not a good sign for you. Darkness in the middle of the day would be interpreted as a sign of divine wrath and displeasure by Jews, by pagans, Romans, polytheists. You pick your religion. That's how it would have been interpreted, and that's exactly right. That, that's confirmed all through the Old Testament. Many times in the Old Testament, darkness represents God's judgment. Uh, one example, Deuteronomy 28, where God describes what it's going to be like when He brings judgment on His people, and He says... Uh, Deuteronomy 28, 29, at midday, you will grope about like a blind man in the dark. At midday. That's one of many examples of how darkness in the middle of the day, that's a sign of God's wrath. So generally speaking, this indicates God's judgment. It's a sign of judgment. Judgment on whom? Well, what does Mark say? Remember, so much of this... this chapter, he's using words that he used earlier in the gospel, and they're pointing us back. So what has he said about the sun going dark in this gospel? Well, back in chapter 13, when he's preaching on the end times, he said that between the tribulation and the glorious second coming, the sky would go dark. Mark 13, 24. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And when we studied that, we found out the powers of the heavens, those are those uh, rebellious spiritual beings in the heavenly realms, the gods that were worshipped by the nations. And generally speaking, all the lights in the heavens, the sun and the moon and the stars, are all associated with those powers. And so... Jesus is saying that he's talking about judgment day. Those powers are going to be judged. He had, pre- he had previously spoken of judgment day with those powers being judged. Now, 
when Jesus is dying on the cross, the sun goes dark. What is that? That's a preview of Judgment Day, right? In the flow of what Mark is saying, in the biblical theology of Mark. The sun goes dark. Jesus is on the cross. The sun goes dark. So Mark's showing us that at that moment, it's a model of Judgment Day. Those three hours are a model of Judgment Day. And those evil powers who were orchestrating all the evil things that the evil people were doing to Jesus were under God's judgment. And that's confirmed in the epistles. If you Listen to how Paul describes what Jesus was doing on the cross in Colossians 2.15. He says, "...having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross." So the day Jesus died on the cross was a very bad day for the powers in the heavens who were in rebellion. Very bad day for the devil, very bad day for the demons. The devil did everything he could to prevent it, he couldn't manage. So the heavens going dark implied judgment on, uh, in the heavens. But that's not the most important aspect of this judgment. Mark emphasizes the judgment on the ground in verse 33 he says at the sixth hour darkness came over uh, came upon the whole land until the ninth hour so it's the sun that went dark but but it, the darkness he emphasizes the fact that it's on the whole land so it's not just a judgment in the heavens it's also a, a sign of judgment on the people who are murdering Jesus which makes sense so back to our question what is the meaning of that darkness in the book of mark what does darkness mean in mark one of the biggest themes that we've seen in this whole study of Mark has been about spiritual blindness and spiritual perception, right? That has been again and again and again. We've seen that all through the book. God takes away, when God takes away somebody's ability to see and perceive spiritual truth, that is a judgment on them for the sin of refusing to see. You refuse to use your eyes, God takes your eyes away. He takes away the light altogether as a judgment. Just like Deuteronomy 28 said, uh, this darkness is a sign that the whole rest of your life now, you're going to be stumbling around in the dark without the ability to perceive truth. That's what this darkness meant. And if you think about it, that's actually an answer to the Pharisees' prayers. Because you remember back in chapter 8 when they were demanding a sign from heaven? They were saying... Oh, sure, you can do all these earthly miracles, Jesus. You can do this stuff down on the ground, but you know, we want to see something up in the sky. Do something up in the sky, then we'll see and believe, right? That's the implication of what they're saying. Kind of like what they said just during the first three hours on the cross. Do this miracle that we want you to do, come down off the cross, then, so that we may see and believe. That's exactly what they said. Do a sign in the sky so we'll see and believe. Well, was that true? Would a miracle up in the sky finally open up the eyes of the Pharisees and chief priests so that they would see and their eyes be opened and they believe? Do you remember what Jesus' answer was to their request back in chapter 8? It was an incomplete sentence. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, if any sign is given to this adulterous generation, and they turned around and walked away. <laughs> That's all he said. <laughs> kind of like in our vernacular, we say, if any sign is given to you people, so help me. <clears throat> and then just, you know, that's kind of the meaning. Well, what is the end of a sentence like that? If this happens to you, so help me. Nothing good, right? Nothing good. Not the kind of sentence you want to hear the end of. So Jesus stopped in that mid-sentence, walked away. Bad sign. We've waited seven chapters now to get to the end of that sentence. Now we get it. If this generation is given a sign from heaven, then what? Well, here's what. They get their sign from heaven. And guess what? It didn't bring light to their eyes. Right? Instead of opening their eyes so they could see and believe, it made their eyes useless. It was darkness. That's what happens to people who reject the evidence that God gives, and they demand different evidence. Oh, I'll believe if I saw this miracle. I'd believe if I saw this. Why doesn't God do this? Why doesn't God do that? And he's given us all this proof. Oh, I want different proof. Well, what you're going to get when you say that is darkness. 
And that's what they got. So this is what this darkness meant. Darkness came over the whole land. They got their sign from heaven. And this was the sign. This is the second half of Jesus' sentence. Thank you for if you listening. want to see the real we world, perceive truth, know what reality is, you have to accept the, the truth about Jesus. Please remember to pray for this ministry. That's what, and remember that's what Mark that is showing ministry, so every gift helps. You have to accept the truth about Jesus or you're going to go blind. Until next time, have you ever thought about the, the fact Lord that at Jesus' birth, there was light above, in the middle Christ of the night, at the and right at Jesus' death, it was dark in the middle of the day? It's Jesus, not the forces of nature, not the sun. It's Jesus that determines whether it's going to be light or dark. He is a more reliable source of light than the sun, the moon, the stars, sunrise, rising in the east, any of that. So the darkness was a judgment on the powers of the heavens. It was a judgment on the people murdering Jesus. And that judgment extended to whom? What kind of people were involved in murdering Jesus? Well, every kind, right? We've seen that in our previous studies. All, every sector of humanity is represented in the murder of Jesus. You've got the Jewish leaders, you've got the crowds, you've got the Gentile rulers, you've got the soldiers, you've got the bystanders, you've got even got other criminals, even Jesus' disciples betraying him and abandoning him. Every segment of humanity, whatever category somebody's in, that category has had a hand in it. Everybody had a hand in it, which means if you and I were there, we would have behaved the same way as those people behaved back then. And so the darkness didn't just descend on the chief priests, the Pharisees, or the Roman guards. or something. When the darkness came upon the whole land, that was a sign of God's judgment on the entire human race. But why just a sign? Because he didn't punish the whole human race right then and there, right? He just gave a sign of judgment in the darkness. Why? Why didn't God actually punish them? Well, he did. He did punish humanity, but the punishment all landed on humanity's representative, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, who stands for the whole human race. The only response that Mark gives us after the th- uh, to, to those three hours of darkness is in verse 33. Or verse 34. It's verse 33. The sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the judgment fell on Israel. The judgment on Israel fell on Israel's shepherd. And the judgment on on humanity fell on humanity's representative, the ultimate human who stands for the whole human race as the last Adam. So Jesus received the punishment during those hours. This is the meaning of this darkness. So what was it like for Jesus? on the cross during those second three hours when it was dark? What was it like for him? The reason darkness is so often used as an indication of God's displeasure is because God is light, right? So darkness is what happens when God turns his face away. That's That's what darkness means. Light brings life, right? Darkness brings death. With light comes perception and understanding and clarity. Where there's light, you can see. With darkness comes ignorance and confusion and stumbling. Light exposes threats, so you can see what's going on. Darkness surrounds you with danger, danger that you can't even perceive or see. As Psalm 22 describes um, this moment, it says, the bulls and wild beasts surrounded him, surrounded Jesus. Wild animals very often stand for evil spirits. All the forces of darkness swirled around Jesus to torment him without any protection from God. No light from God's face at all. Light is connected to joy, right? Darkness is connected to gloom. These are all the implications of light and darkness in Scripture. Think of the very first reference to darkness in the Bible. 
Genesis 1-2. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. That's what it was like before the days of creation when God made the world habitable for man, right? Darkness. And God's very first act of creation was to create light and put darkness in its place. So darkness, for darkness to show up at noon out of its place when it's supposed to be light, that's a sign of decreation, uncreation, right? The, the undoing of everything God did in Genesis 1 to make life possible for human beings. It's like the very creation is coming apart at the seams when Jesus dies. Darkness in the middle of the day. All that sustains, that darkness represents all that sustains life being removed, withheld. All the horrible things that darkness represents, that whole list I just ran through really fast. And we could do a big study on each one of those things, but all those things that darkness represents, that's what Jesus was enduring during those three hours. When God turns the light of his countenance toward you, you can handle anything. You can handle anything. We read about martyrs who are burned at the stake with tears of joy, you know, singing praises. Why? God's giving, God's turning his face towards them, giving them light. And so they can actually have joy even in the midst of horrible pain. Paul and Silas in stocks, in prison, and, you know, after all this horrible treatment, and they're singing. They're happy. Why? Because God turned the light of his face toward them, and they had that even in the darkness of that dungeon. So God gives special grace to his children in times of severe suffering that brings them joy. That's what the light of God's face will do for your soul. And that's how, that's how it had always been for Jesus his whole life. He had had access to that. In the past, when Jesus drew near to the Father in prayer, if he was having a hard time, hard day, whatever, and he drew near to the Father, he experienced joy and refreshment and renewal and hope and strengthening, all the various benefits that come from the light of God's presence. Even in Gethsemane, at the worst moment of Jesus' life, when he's about dead, I mean, he's sweating blood. What happened? God Gave him some light. He sent angels to come and minister to him and comfort him. It had been like that Jesus' whole life, but not this time. When he turned to God this time, no joy, no comfort, no feelings of hope, no strengthening, none of that. This time, God allowed Jesus to feel the ice-cold, pitch-black outer darkness as if he'd been completely abandoned by the Father altogether. And it was in the depths of that darkness that Jesus took upon himself our sin so that our evil was credited to his account in, in the eyes of God. He who knew no sin became sin in God's eyes. It was in that unbearable blackness that the Son of God was cursed and made to be a curse by God when he, God laid upon him the iniquity of us all. It's a wonder he was even able to cry out. What was it like for Jesus during those three hours? Judging from his response, from Jesus' response, evidently it was worse than all the previous torture, right? Because there's no record that Jesus made a peep through the whole whipping, the scourging, the beating, the punches in the face, the mocking, the humiliation. As a lamb before her shears is silent, so Jesus didn't make a sound that whole time, all those hours of all of that. But in that darkness, that got to him. That got to him. All the hours the people barking jeers at him, he could handle that, but three hours of silence from heaven pushes Jesus to the breaking point where he finally cries out and shouts. Think of the extremes of emotion that, that, that Jesus is feeling at that point. I mean, what kind of emotion would you have to experience to do this in a crowded area? How strong would your emotions have to be to say a prayer to God out loud at all, much less scream it at the top of your lungs? A desperate prayer like this. Jesus just it's like he's almost losing control. 
That cup that made Jesus sweat blood in Gethsemane, just to think about, (laughs) just thinking about it made him sweat blood, and he begged God, don't make me drink it. It was in this terrible darkness that Jesus drank that cup. And if the anticipation of the cup almost killed him, imagine the reality. That's what happened in the darkness. Now, what else does Mark want us to see in this darkness? Well, there's a hyperlink. When he describes this darkness, he borrows the language right out of the Exodus account from the plague, the darkness plague in Egypt. So at the Exodus, darkness came over the whole land for three days. At the cross, darkness came over the whole land for three hours. And it's borrowed language right out of there. I'm convinced it's a very intentional hyperlink back to the darkness plague. Theologians call that the penultimate plague because it's the second to last plague. The ultimate plague, the worst of all of them, of course, was the last one, the death of the firstborn. But of all the plagues leading up to that one, the worst of all those was the darkness, which is, which is interesting if you think about it. Because there had been some pretty bad plagues, right? I mean, all those other things, horrible sickness, pain, boils, insects, frogs, blood, really bad stuff, right? But nothing was as bad as that darkness. The Exodus passage says a darkness that can be felt. That's, that's remarkable to me because darkness is nothing. It's literally nothing, right? Fleas can hurt you. Locusts can destroy your crops. Frogs can cause problems. But what power does darkness have? It doesn't even exist. Darkness doesn't even exist. It's just a word we use to describe nothing. It's a word we describe the absence of life, light. Darkness is literally nothing. And yet, it's our greatest threat because of how much we need light to exist. That's how needy we are. All it takes to kill us is nothing. (laughs) Just take away the light. So it's an intentional thing for for Mark to, to direct our attention back to the Exodus. Why does God want our attention to be on the Exodus in this moment? Because of what Jesus is doing on the cross was a fulfillment of what happened at the Exodus. At the Exodus, you had three days of darkness followed by the death of the firstborn. On the cross, you have three hours of darkness followed immediately by the death of God's firstborn. At the Exodus, what was the purpose of that darkness and the death of the firstborn and all the plagues? Salvation, right? Deliverance from bondage. God was delivering his people from bondage in Egypt. Now, the ultimate work of salvation and deliverance, the final two plagues are reenacted, but God inflicts those plagues on his own son. And at the Exodus, what protected God's people from the final plague, the death of the firstborn? What protected the people? The blood of the lamb, right? They called it Passover because the angel of death passed over any house that had that blood on the on the house. So in each Israelite house, a lamb died in place of the firstborn. That was the first Passover. When did Jesus die? Passover. Passover. His death was not only during Passover, it was the fulfillment of Passover. All those Passovers that had happened all those years were pointing to this moment. This is the fulfillment. It was everything Passover pointed to. Jesus was both the firstborn who dies and the lamb who died in place of God's people who were being delivered from bondage. That's why the night before, Jesus was so excited to celebrate Passover, the Passover meal with his disciples, and he transformed the Passover when he told his disciples that the bread was now his body and the cup was the new covenant in his his blood. All the lines of the whole Old Testament come in to converge on one single point at the cross. Everything comes together at the cross. So all that is the significance of the darkness. There's a lot of meaning to that. 
Now let's look at Jesus' response. So this is the only time on record Jesus ever speaks to God without calling him Father. Just here. Jesus cried out in a loud voice, verse 34, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the last words we're going to hear Jesus speak in the Gospel of Mark. It's the last time he speaks. Now, you might have expected the Messiah to go out with something a little more victorious. <laughs> the Savior, the Messiah, comes, and you might expect he goes, you know, like, I'll arise again, you know, or, or point to the chief priest, this isn't over, you know. <laughs> put on some glasses, I'll be back. Or something. <laughs> something a little more positive, right, than, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he dies. And many Christians throughout the ages have been embarrassed by this. Because in the early years of the church, Christians are trying to convince the world that this Jewish carpenter was God. Right? They're trying to convince, Jesus is actually God, and you should bow your knee and worship him. And, and they're trying to defend the idea of the Trinity, you know, which is a hard concept for the people. And, and a question like this wasn't very much help. <laughs> You're trying to convince the world of that, and then, and then Jesus says this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they found this a very hard verse to explain. I'd like to suggest that if this verse is a stumbling block to your faith, uh, it should be the opposite. Verses like this, hard verses, are some of the bedrock cornerstone proofs of Christianity because... For a few reasons. One, liberal critics, even the most liberal critics, have to admit this is authentic. These words are authentic Jesus. Even the critics that say Jesus barely said anything in the Bible, none of that's really Jesus. This, they'll say, well, yeah, this had to be Jesus. There's no way the disciples or the church, later church would ever make this up and put words like this into the mouth of Jesus if it didn't really happen. No way. They're not going to put this such a difficult thing in Jesus' mouth. If you're trying to invent a religion and convince everybody that a crucified carpenter is actually Almighty God, you're, you're trying to invent a doctrine of the Trinity, why would you have him cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You just wouldn't do that. And so even the liberals say, yeah, Jesus definitely said this. And, you know, if you're even a little bit dishonest, if you're writing a gospel and, and Jesus did say this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You're gonna, it's like, oh, I'll leave that out. Like most stuff they left out, right? They didn't include nearly anywhere close to everything Jesus said. So yeah, maybe leave that out. If the gospel writers were the slightest bit dishonest, you would not have verses like this in the Bible. If it's true, you know, Da Vinci Code movies and all that stuff were true where the early church got together and they just edited everything out and they made it all perfect just the way they wanted, you would not have verses like this in the Bible. Passages like this are some of the best ones to keep in mind if you ever have doubts about the veracity of the Scriptures. They are proof that the Gospel writers were incredibly honest men. Scholars, are, even secular scholars, are amazed at how honest the Bible writers were and, 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 and accurately depicting the things that really did happen. All right, so that's kind of a side note, but what is the explanation why Jesus would say this? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Don't you know the answer to that question, Jesus? Is it a shock that Jesus uttered these words on the cross? Not if you understand that Jesus was doing what many Christians do, have done when they were in the throes of death. Namely, quote a line from a favorite hymn. That's what Jesus is doing. He's quoting a line from a favorite psalm, Psalm 22. And if you look back at what those words meant in the context of Psalm 22, uh, they explode with meaning. And it gives us a whole lot of insight into the meaning of the cross. And we're going to find some things out here about the, what, the meaning of the cross that you may not have considered before. Jesus just isn't just crying out in pain. He is crying out in pain. He is crying out in desperation, no question. But he's not just doing it. He's also teaching us. He's still teaching us. Even in the throes and agony of death, he's still teaching. So let's take a look at the psalm that Jesus pointed to us to in the moments before he died. Psalm 22. Now, Psalm 22, the structure of Psalm 22. Oh, I wish we could do the whole psalm tonight. I wish we had time. But it has three very clear sections. 
and all three of the sections of this psalm are crucial for understanding the psalm in its original context and for understanding the meaning of the cross, what Jesus is accomplishing on the cross. We've got to understand this psalm. Jesus wanted us to understand it. That's why he quoted it. Now, three sections. The first section of Psalm 22 is the longest, and you could title it groaning. Groaning. The psalmist is absolutely miserable. And he expresses that misery for 21 verses. The first 21 verses of Psalm 22. You say, wow, what kind of hardship was he having? What was, it, what was the trouble he was going through? Was he sick? Did he lose a loved one? Or financial crisis? Maybe he got into a really bad wagon accident or you know, gored by an ox? Or what? what was the problem? What was going on in his life? He never says. He never said. He, sp he spends the first 21 verses talking about how devastated he is and never gets around to telling us what the hardship actually was. So you say, well, what does he talk about for 21 verses then? He talks about the one part of it that he just couldn't handle. He just could not handle. Whatever the physical trouble was, he could deal with that. He could handle that. David had been in some tight spots. But this one thing, this one part was just too much. You say, what was that? What was that heartbreak? Well, he tells us in the very first verse. Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Everyone else forsaking me? Everyone else turning against me? That I can handle. That I can deal. But you, God, that I can't bear. He doesn't say, my God, my God, why did you let me get so sick? He doesn't say, my God, my God, why did you take my child? He's... He could endure any hardship if God were close to him, strengthening him, giving him comfort and joy. The part that was unbearable was the distance. That distance. Verse 1, why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. This is the most intense suffering the servant of God can know. God being distant. There's, a, there's nothing worse. Nothing worse, nothing more painful. And then to even ratchet up that pain, he's got people all around him rubbing it in. Verse 6, I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults at me, shaking their heads. Now listen to the mocking. This is what was the worst. Verse 8, he trusts the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. See, so the implication is God isn't helping you. Because God has rejected you. When I lost my ministry, I got a letter from a man who had been my friend prior. And he said, just like when Samuel told Saul, God has rejected you as king, Daryl, God has rejected you. And I can tell you, that is an exquisite kind of pain when... Based on everything that's happening, it has the ring of truth. It feels true. It really does feel like God has rejected you. That was David's situation when he wrote Psalm 22, and it was the first time in his life. He'd never had, he'd had, he'd been in plenty of tight spots. Never without God's nearness. Verse 9, you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you've been my God. You have been my God this whole time, my whole life. You've always been there. But not this time. Now it's different. You're so far. And without God to help him, he was at the mercy of his enemies. Do not, verse 11, do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there's no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey and opening their mouths. Again, it's that the, the, the Jewish literature uses wild animals as metaphors for demonic powers. Not only were human enemies closing in, but the dark forces of evil were swarming him. And it's pushing him to the brink of death. Verse 14, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It's melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust. Dogs surrounded me, uh, surrounded me like a band of evil men has circled me. Like a lion, they pinned my hands and feet. 
I can count on my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So what did Jesus mean when he quoted the opening line of Psalm 22 on the cross? He's letting us know he was going through the same thing David went through when he wrote Psalm 22. Now, did God really forsake Jesus? No. No, God did not forsake Jesus on the cross. Did Jesus believe that God had forsaken him on the cross? No. For that matter, did David believe that God had forsaken him when he wrote Psalm 22.1? Did David really believe that? No. David did not believe that. And I'll say more about this next time, but the, the whole point of section 2 of Psalm 22, remember all three sections are crucial, Section 2 is from verses 22 to 26. The whole point of section 2 of Psalm 22 is to make the point that God didn't really forsake him. Right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In section 1. Section 2, uh, God didn't really forsake me. So look at verse 24. It's very clear. For he has not despised the little of or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. God was there. He wasn't far. He, he was listening. So David says, he says, no, I, I know this isn't true. I know what I said in verse 1 isn't really true. In fact, you don't even have to go all the way down to verse 24. You don't even need section 2 to, to get that. It's obvious just from the verse that Jesus quoted, verse 1. Because look how he addresses God. My God! My God! That's not an insignificant way to address Jesus, as, as we were talking about in dinner. Remember back in Mark 12 when Jesus told the Sadducees that God is Abraham's God? And the conclusions he drew from that? And we studied that. We took a deep dive into the concept of God being your God. What does it mean for God to be your God? That, that study is one of my favorite studies, the whole book of Mark. That concept of God being your God is such a precious truth. It's so precious, and it's something most people on the planet cannot say. They can't say. Most people cannot pray this prayer. They can't say Psalm 22.1. Most people in the world cannot address God as my God any more than they can walk up to a random woman and call her my wife. They can't call him my God because he's not their God. You, if you refer to a lawyer as my lawyer, that means he serves as a lawyer for you on your behalf. Same thing with my God. If God is your God, he's functioning as a God for you on your behalf. That's what my God means. That's what God says when he says, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. When that promise is an amazing promise. And he doesn't make it to everyone. It means you have a unique very special relationship with him where he's agreed to be your God and exercise his divine attributes on your behalf. That's what my God means. If David believed, if he really believed that God had actually forsaken him, he wouldn't be calling him my God. David still believed that he... He was his God. He still believed that he had that special privileged relationship with God, even though it didn't feel like it. For that, for that matter, you can tell this from the fact that David is praying at all. <laughs> right? If he really thought that God had forsaken him, why would he even be praying this prayer? Why would he be writing Psalm 22? What would be the point if he didn't believe God would even hear it? You don't pray to a God if you if you don't think that God is even listening to you, people who really actually believe that God has forsaken them, they actually believe God has abandoned them, those people don't pray. They don't go to God with their heartache. They just walk away. They give up on God, and they look for some other way of being rescued. They certainly don't write a psalm like Psalm 22, where God is the solution to everything. So no, David clearly did not actually believed that God had forsaken him when he wrote verse 1. He was expressing how he felt. 
Not what he believed, how he felt. Then in section two, he shifts to what he believed, what he knew to be true. And that's when the praises started to flow. Section two is all about praise. And again, I wish we had more time. We'll get into it next time, but into the section two. But I, I, don't, I want to make sure we have time tonight for section three of the psalm, because that's where it really gets interesting. Uh, and, and we'll talk next time about whether the original readers of Psalm 22 could have known that this is a messianic psalm. But tonight, let's just focus on... on uh, well, actually, before we get to section three, let me say... Let's go back to section one and apply it to Jesus. Even though Jesus knew that God hadn't really forsaken him. Jesus has just as much insight as David. Agree with that? <laughs> Jesus has much insight. And he's probably quoting the verse in context, meaning the same thing David meant by it, right? He knew that God didn't really, really forsake him, or he wouldn't be crying out to God. But even though Jesus knew that, it didn't change how he felt. And how he felt was... God has forsaken me. That's how it felt. For the first time in Jesus' life, the first time in Jesus' life, he was suffering and there was no comfort, no strengthening, no ability to draw near to God at all. So much so that judging by his response, this is the most unbearable moment of the whole crucifixion. Because this is when he cries out. When darkness enveloped the whole land in this center of, of that darkness. This, the, the darkest spot of all was on the cross where Jesus hung and agonizing under the curse of God. And everything that darkness means in the scriptures, emptiness, inability to see, disconnection from uh, the world, the real world, danger, misery, gloom, despair, judgment, death, all of that crushed down on Jesus for three hours until he finally just cries out. Isn't it astonishing that Jesus knows from experience what it feels like for us to be distant from God? He even knows that. How extreme must, have our, must our guilt have been to require such a price? Our culture tries to imagine there's, our sin isn't that bad. In fact, our culture tries to imagine there is no, no such thing as sin, even. When do you ever hear the word sin in our culture? Ever. Unless it's to mock Christians. Any movie, news, whatever, anywhere. You don't hear the word sin. Why? What? what? <laughs> Whatever happened to sin? Is it, is it really true that nobody has sinned? Nobody? All our troubles in the world, none of it's caused by sin? Well, no matter how deep they bury their heads in the sand about sin, the inescapable... And they'll talk about, yeah, there's wrongdoing. People do bad things. They'll say that. Why won't they say sin? Well, because sin is against God. Wrongdoing is measured by human standards. But no matter how much they bury their head in the sand, the inescapable reality is that our sinfulness and our indebtedness to God staggers the imagination. And it's so deep, so pitch black, so absolutely incurable that nothing short of the sacrifice of God's Son by the Father turning His face away from His own Son during His dying hours would be enough to pay that debt. And that cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That cry encapsulates more than anything else what Jesus was saving us from. Jesus endured being forsaken, or the feeling of being forsaken by God, in order to save us the fate of actually being forsaken by God forever. That's the main thing Jesus was dying to save us from. And that's where section 3 of Psalm 22 comes in. So back to Psalm 22. Look at how the psalm ends. 
Section one is the groaning. Section two affirms that God will indeed hear the prayer of, the, of his suffering servant and deliver him, and everyone should praise God for that. Which is a little bit interesting. It's like the whole nation should praise God because God's going to hear the prayers of this one suffering guy. Interesting. And then God will deliver him in such a way that this will be the result. Listen to the result of this. This sounds a little bit grandiose. Verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord, and they will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. Wow. One man will will, will suffer the extremes of darkness to the point where he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God will respond to that by saving this one man in a way that brings light to people throughout the entire world for generation after generation after generation? I don't remember that happening with David. That's what happened on the cross. That's the meaning of the cross. That's why Jesus wanted to point us back to Psalm 22. He's teaching us what the cross was accomplishing. When Psalm 22 talks about salvation coming to a people yet unborn at the time, in David's time, who are those people? You're looking at them. It's us. We're the people yet unborn at that time. Jesus endured the worst that men could do to him. Right? Then he endured the terrifying darkness of God turning his face away for three hours in order to save us from an eternity of darkness, outer darkness. That cry, why have you forsaken me, is what he was saving us from, being forsaken by God. Because that's the worst. Did you know you could actually endure a lake of fire just fine if God was with you? If you had the presence of God there with you, you could handle a lake of fire. Shadrach, Meshach. Yeah, Shadrach, Meshach. Didn't bother them, right? If he turned his face toward you, you could handle that with joy, but nothing is more unbearable than for God to cut off the light of his face altogether. Now, we have so much more to cover about Psalm 22 next time, but but for now, let me just give you this bottom line for what we covered tonight, because I know we've covered a lot. When Jesus came into the world, there was bright light at midnight. When Jesus died, there was deep darkness at midday. Jesus is the light of the world. And this is what we can take away from this, from that darkness. What is your outlook for 2023, for the year to come? When you look at the year ahead, what are the factors that are going to impact your well-being? How good of a year you're going to have? Is it whether your health goes one way or the other way? Maybe your financial situation? The economy? What happens in this crazy world we're living in? Your marriage? Your kids? Your grandkids? What they're going to do? Here's the truth. There's one factor that will determine your well-being or lack of well-being in the year 2023, and it's this, light. The light of God's presence. That's what you need. The more Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, dwells in your heart through faith, the greater the chances 2023 will be the best year of your life so far. But if it gets a little cloudy and the light of God's presence gets dimmed in your life for one reason or another, it's not going to be a great year. That's what determines it. There are a lot of factors that can affect how brightly God's face shines upon you in the coming year, not all of which are even under your control. But the highest goal every one of us could set in this room right now, could set for ourselves this year, is to seek the light of His face more than anything else. Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer. Turn your face towards us. Turn your face towards us and be gracious to us that we might have the light of life 
and live and have life to abundantly because Jesus endured the darkness. We don't have to endure it. Save us from voluntarily stepping into what we don't have to endure. Give us your light. We pray it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Amen. And you said that did God really take him? No, he didn't. Okay. All right. So it's, uh, if God pulled out, poured out all his wrath on Jesus on the cross, then that would qualify as him being totally forsaken. And uh, I said he wasn't forsaken. So here's, here's my response. And I'll, uh, like, we can cover some more of this next time, but I'll just give you some quick responses first. I think it's a little bit of a, uh, a little bit incorrect to say God poured out His wrath on Jesus on the cross. The Bible never actually says that. For years, I taught that until somebody pointed out to me the Bible doesn't actually say that. He's told, he came up to me and told me that, and I said, "Of course it does." And I started flipping through my Bible. <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, I thought oh, this doesn't say. Well, this verse that doesn't say it either. And finally, I realized it, the Bible doesn't say it. Um, and I've come to believe that I don't believe that that's even true. I don't believe that God was angry with Jesus on the cross. I think God was pleased with Jesus on the cross. I think he's never been more pleased with Jesus. But I would also say that God's wrath, God had wrath against mankind and the sin, the, the, all of man's sin, And he treated Jesus as if he were that angry at Jesus. So in that sense, if that's what you mean by he poured out his wrath on Jesus, then you could say that that's true. He treated Jesus as if he were angry with him. But emotionally, I don't believe God was angry with Jesus. The Bible doesn't say that. Um, I think he was pleased with Jesus, and he he does say that multiple times. so, um, so did he forsake Jesus? Uh, I don't think he forsook him because, uh, f- for one reason, if, God, if Jesus believed that God had forsaken him, he wouldn't be able to call him my God, my God, because he wouldn't be his God. Number two, Jesus would be misquoting, misinterpreting Psalm 22, because in Psalm 22, clearly David didn't believe God had forsaken him, because when you get to section 2, he says he didn't forsake him. He did not forsake him. And so um, uh, Jesus, if he thought, if he's quoting Psalm 22 to mean he actually did forsake him, then he's meaning the opposite of what David meant by that verse, and he's taking, he's taking the verse out of context and twisting it. And I don't think Jesus did that. I think, he, I think he quoted it and meant the same thing that it meant in context. In fact, he wanted us to look at the context. And not just Jesus, the Holy Spirit when he inspired this whole section of the crucifixion, he referred to Psalm 22 again and again and again. I think like something like five times. Um, I'll, I'll show you the verses next time, but um, dividing up the clothes, casting lots for his clothes, um, uh, the, uh, just all these different, the, they, the, the bystanders hurled insults at me, word for word the same, bystanders hurled insults at him. I mean, all this language right out of Psalm 22, again and again and again, all through the chapter, the Holy Spirit and Mark, they want us to look back to Psalm 22, and not just verse 1 of Psalm 22, but the whole psalm. The writer of Hebrews applies section 2 of Psalm 22, where he says, I said to my brothers, praise him because he's delivered Applies that to Jesus. So um, the gospel writers, not just Mark, but the other gospel writers, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, all this pointing us to the whole psalm, Psalm 22, which... Psalm 22 is very clear. It wasn't, it wasn't a total forsaking. It felt like forsaking, but God was still, still loved him, still listened to his prayers, was still his God. Um, so uh, then another argument. That word, forsake, is the same word in Acts 2, when Peter's doing the, his sermon on, uh, at the day of Pentecost. And he says... God did not abandon him. It's that same word. God did not forsake him. So uh, now he's talking about another psalm there, but he's talking about how when God, the proof that God didn't forsake him was that he raised him from the dead. 
If God forsook him, he wouldn't have raised him from the dead. Jesus said all along that God wouldn't forsake him. He, every single time he predicted his death, he also predicted his resurrection. God will raise me from the dead. He knew that God wouldn't leave him. He knew that God would raise him up. And so, um, uh, so that statement in Acts 2, using that same word, God did not forsake him, I think is evidence. So, now there are some commentators. Now, I'm in the minority on this. I'm in the minority on this, this view. Most of the commentaries wouldn't agree with this. Um, and some of the commentaries argue, they say, well, Jesus felt abandoned, or he was abandoned. What's the difference? If you feel abandoned, you are abandoned. I think there's all the, all the difference in the world. Because if you actually are abandoned, God does not care about your suffering. He does not care. He doesn't, he's not listening to your prayer. He doesn't have compassion on you. Um, but if you just feel, God is allowing you to feel abandoned, but He still loves you, He still cares about you, He's still listening to your prayer, that's the point that Psalm 22 is making. Is It just felt that way, but I know in reality, God didn't actually forsake me. Um, Could it even be just a temporary forsaking and abandoning? I mean, it doesn't have to be a permanent abandoning. It could be... So couldn't it be that even just like a momentary... actually experience that momentary forsaking by God, not a permanent one. Uh, I still don't even think that could be the case because then Jesus would be incorrect to say, my God, my God. Yeah, yeah. yeah in fact, I think one of the most important lessons we can take from Psalm 22 is, that Jesus is pointing to us, too, is um, when he felt abandoned by God, that spoke a lot to the persecuted Christians who were reading the Gospel of Mark, who felt abandoned by God. And by pointing them to Psalm 22, he's letting them know, you have to make that shift from feeling to knowing, from section 1 to section 2. And when David made that shift, he went from groaning to praising. And we need to learn to make that shift. You live by feeling, you're going to be in trouble. Uh, now, you, that's not to say you discount the feeling. You still express the truth of your feeling to God. You cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You can go on for 21 verses saying that. And you're, that's totally okay. David wasn't wrong to write those first 21 verses. He's pouring his heart out to God. This is how I feel, God. I feel like you've totally abandoned me. As long as you get, do get to section 2 and you make that shift and you say, but I know you haven't forsaken me. This is just how it feels. And what a gift to humanity who feels that way a lot. Yeah. Now, I'm guessing that if we drilled and drilled and drilled and drilled, we would find that what you mean by temporary forsaking and what I mean by God allowing him to feel totally forsaken is identical. I don't think there's going to be a difference between those two things. The fact that God hadn't abandoned him. Okay, so you're saying he could call him my God and still have been abandoned, just like you could say my wife abandoned me, and she's still my wife, but she has abandoned me. Yes. Um, yeah. I see what you're saying there. I think um, my God, this, this phrase my God, carries too much weight to allow for that analogy. I think it carries way more weight than my wife. Uh, because a wife could abandon you and still be your wife. I don't think God could abandon you and still be your God. Um, uh, forsake you. Right. Yeah, I, God, my God carries so much more weight than... I mean, my wife is an illustration, but it's not a perfect illustration. Um, and I think my God carries too much weight to allow for a total abandonment. Um, uh, I think that... Um, you know, Hebrews says, For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. He just had some... He still had... Um, and I realize that was still future... But um, uh, I would just have a hard time with Psalm 22 having one meaning when David wrote it and then Jesus quoting it in a way that has a completely different meaning, really an opposite meaning. Um, but on the other hand, if you want to say that for God to turn his face away from you 
and allow you to feel no comfort from him and no relational closeness to him, if you want to define that as abandonment, then I would say, yes, Jesus was temporarily abandoned. But um, I just wouldn't define, I wouldn't say the word abandon could be used to describe that. I think that's different. So it's, it's a little bit of just a way we're using the word abandon. But like I said before, I think ultimately what I think Jesus went through in that moment and what you think Jesus went through in that moment are, are, are identical, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, darkness is nothing, but God can certainly bring a lot out of nothing. He can use nothingness to accomplish his purposes, which was what he was doing. But I think during those three hours, Jesus was doing his thing, what he always did, what just turning to God. He's in physically, he's in pain. And you know, when you're physically in pain, you turn to God, God, and nothing. And emotionally, he was in pain. He turns to God, God, and nothing. And just no. Communion. Okay, how do I know that it wasn't a natural phenomenon to, to, to bring the darkness? Um, actually, I don't know that 100%. It, um, I just know that it was obvious enough that it was supernatural that the people had the response that they had. They went from jeering and mocking to beating their breasts and walking away. And uh, they weren't dummies. They just because a cloud comes over, they're not going to just freak out. and you know. Um, I know it was. I mean, if it was an eclipse... That would still have to be supernatural. For there to be an eclipse at the time of a full moon for three hours uh, would have to be a really, really supernatural thing. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, you know, but as far as a dust storm and all that stuff, um, I mean, it was right from noon to three, and, uh, and the people had that response. What's that? Like a severe thunderstorm or something. Or a severe storm. Yeah, I mean... I'll, I'll, I'll hold that as a possibility that God could have done, uh, it could have brought some natural phenomenon that was so severe that it still had that effect on people. But my main point is, it was so severe that it was clear even to the unbelievers that this was a fearful moment and it was related to what was going on. So, so the darkness, when you talked about Egypt and that darkness <clears throat> that they had, was it that dark with Christ? Yeah, well, it's uh, the, the Egyptian darkness was a darkness that could be felt. Yeah. And, then, and it was so severe that it was worse than all those other plagues. Oh. And Mark borrows the very wording from the Egyptian uh, uh, account in his account to describe this three hours of darkness. To me, that implies this is the same kind of darkness as that plague. Yeah, I, I, you can't do much in the pitch dark. No. You, especially if you think, "Oh, God is furious with us right now. This isn't good." Mm-hmm. You just you're stunned. This is noon. You know, I mean, this is. Um, it doesn't say that it was silent, but it also doesn't record anybody saying anything, which is very different from all the record everything that happened up to noon. Right? Lots of everybody saying everything. Everybody saying everything, and then psh, nothing. So whether it was silent or not, Mark portrays it as, it's, it, in the text, it's silence. Nobody's talking. And so it, it, makes, it makes it a solemn darkness for us when we look at it in the text. It would be hard to feel darkness. When I read that in Exodus, because I've been reading that too, I just, how do you feel darkness? How do you feel darkness? It's, it's nothing. It's nothing. But people who... that dark. Yeah. I mean... Not to see. People who, people who go down into the cat. So we all think we know what total darkness is, right? You go in at night and close yeah. the doors and you can't see a hand in front of your face. And mm-hmm. We think we know darkness, but you talk to people who go into the caves mm-hmm. um, and then when you get down in the caves and then they turn off the light and people start to panic and, they, and it's like they say it's nothing like anything you've ever experienced. So there's something about dark, dark. I mean, to me, it seems like if it's totally dark... And I can't see my fa- hand in front of my face. And then I close my eyes. Seems like that's as dark as it gets, but it's not. There's another level of darkness below that. that yeah, it's like it, just a substance there. How much suffering was that? So good. So Christ's divine nature couldn't look upon his human nature. <laughs> yeah. 
Yes, yes. I, I mean, I, I will say this. I told you I'm in the minority in this view um, in saying it the way I say it, that God didn't really forsake Jesus. But one thing that all the conservative theologians would agree with is um, there was definitely no rift in the Trinity. However you explain this, there was definitely no rift in the Trinity or separation from the Father and the Son, God the Father and God the Son in any sense at any moment, ever. There never could be. God is God and He's always the Trinity. And he's, you know, uh, This separation had to do with Jesus' human nature. It's a strong statement, um, but it's a it, it's not. It might not be as strong as it sounds. So when it when it says Jesus became sin, I mean, you take that in just the most literal sense without the surrounding context, and it might you might just say he actually turned into evil, so that he wasn't even Jesus anymore. He was just pure evil. Um, I think that's what that verse means. Because if you read the surrounding context, you'll see that Jesus became sin. In the same way, we became righteousness. How did we become righteousness? Well, righteousness was credited to our account in God's eyes. Um, Jesus became sin in the sense that sin was credited to Jesus' account in God's eyes. He didn't become actually evil. But in, his, in God's eyes, our sin was credited to his account. Oh, Mount Moriah. Whoa, you can turn it with an eye. Oh, really? It was... Yeah, so you, you, if you've ever been in a situation where he's like, there are demons here. This is evil. I, I, I feel evil. I feel darkness. If you've ever been in a situation like that, you can just multiply that times infinity, and you've got, I think, this darkness. And I, that's, I think that's why the bulls and the lions and all these wild animals that represent demons surrounding him, swirling around him. I mean, that's... Uh, um, I don't know if that actually happened to David, or if that part is only pointing forward to the Messiah, but definitely happened to Jesus. No, I don't. The question is, do I think Satan and demons thought they won when he was on the cross? No, I do not think they thought they won. I think songs that we sing in church about uh, they were celebrating and they thought that was a great moment when Jesus died on the cross. I totally, I don't even sing those songs. I don't agree with that. Everything I read in the gospel, every single thing all the way through the gospel, Satan was trying to prevent the cross, prevent the cross, prevent the cross. I think it was the worst moment of Satan's life. Um, He knew exactly what it meant. And I read you that passage from Colossians where on the cross, Jesus was triumphing over those spirits and subjecting them to public disgrace. Uh, They knew they were being defeated. They felt it. They hated it. It was a catastrophe for them. Right. Yeah, their last effort was to try to get him to come down. Like, let's get him to just still. There's, there's still hope. He's not quite dead. Let's get him to come on down. Thank you for listening. We pray these principles from the Word of God are helping you find the peace of God as you draw near to the God of peace. Please remember to pray for this ministry, and remember that we're a crowd-funded ministry, so every gift helps. Just go to treasuringgod.com. Until next time, rejoice in the Lord always and set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God.